Uh, take your Bibles, and we're going to continue in the book of First Thessalonians. If you're uh, visiting with us, this is what we have been doing for the last number of weeks, and uh, we will be in it probably till the end of this year. Uh, or Corinthians, what did I say? Thessalonians. Maybe I wish we were in Thessalonians today, because uh, Corinthians ain't getting any easier. Um, but uh, we're in the book of First Corinthians, and uh, uh, so uh, you'll find that in the Bible or in the pew, uh, pew uh, in front of you or the seat in front of you. And uh, this has been a, a, already a great um, book for us to look at, and uh, it's got a number of issues now that we're going to look at uh, in the coming weeks, which will, I think, really challenge us as, a, as individuals and as a congregation of just how we live in a, in a difficult world and as we relate to one another, even as we are still sinners. Um, and uh, Paul is so helpful in his uh, guidance and his dealing with some of these problems here. So if you have your Bibles open, I'm just going to read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 14 to 21, and then uh, we will close out this uh, particular section, and uh, it sets us up for what's coming next week in chapter 5. So starting at verse 14 of 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ... You do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you, then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love, in a spirit of gentleness? Father, we thank you for uh, the opportunity now to work our minds. I'm so thankful, Father, that we are not robots. I am so thankful that you have not um, so designed the church that we disengage our minds as we follow after you, but you have given us the ability to think and to reason. And I pray that as we come to even a text like this, that um, you will help us to do that. That even though some of the things that are in here might trouble our hearts. I pray that we would engage our hearts and our minds and our wills as we wrestle through this text. So help us, Father. Thank you for the spirit who you have given us, who dwells in us, to help us think rightly. Uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this part of the letter is a significant part because it draws to a conclusion this first major section of 1 Corinthians, which has been about division in the church. The tone is different now. Um, the end of uh, last uh, section, or the last week, it was a little bit of sarcasm detected in the Apostle's speech. Now he has reverted or replaced that with um, deep fatherly affection towards the Corinthian believers. I really believe that this is the tone that ought to be set in any church, and it's certainly a tone that's set in our families, but 
The tone is one of leaders who act as fathers and who love their congregation with fatherly affection. These verses, I think, set the tone for some important issues that are on the table. Paul is not just dealing with any group of people here. He's dealing with the church of God in Corinth. And at the heart of this church of God is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And Paul has been bringing us back to that over and over and over from all different directions to say that that is what unifies us as a church. That is the foundation of the church. That is what we build on as a church. That is what we use our gifts for is to build up the body of Christ in a focus of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul has referred to himself in a number of ways throughout the first uh, section of this uh, book. He's talked about himself as a servant, as a farmer, as a fellow worker, as a master builder, as a galley slave, as a steward of God. And now he writes as a spiritual father. And I think in some ways he's saved the best for last. I think you would know if you followed the scriptures uh, a bit that there are obvious parallels between being a spiritual father and a physical father. Good home management is, after all, a qualification for church leadership. And effective leadership in the church is not rooted in one's business success. It is rooted, in other words, in family success. For those leaders who are married and who have children, the teaching of the Scripture is clear. To elders, Paul writes, he must manage his own household well, with all dignity keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And to deacons, he writes, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. And so again, those who have managed their own households well are those who should be entrusted to manage the household of God. And good home management is never a point of pride but it is always to be reflected on with deep humility and thankfulness to God. And so as Paul brings this part of the letter to a close, he would be in full agreement with the Apostle John who wrote, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And I think that is Paul's desire in prayer for this church in Corinth. I just want to look at six characteristics. I wrestled with this all week. Um, and I hope you don't feel I've taken license with the text, but I just want to highlight the way that Paul, as a father, deals with the Corinthian believers and maybe just remind us and help us as we think about these things. I think my first point is simply this, that he speaks carefully to his children. He speaks carefully to his children. Paul says in verse 14 there, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you. I think shaming is rarely helpful in bringing lasting change. And those who use shame are often intoxicated with power and position. It is one thing to shame a child. It is entirely another thing for a child to feel shame because they reflect on certain actions that they've committed. It can be a very good thing for a child to feel the weight of his actions or for a follower of Jesus Christ to feel the weight of their sin such that it makes them feel ashamed. But it is another thing altogether 
for leaders and those who disciple or for fathers in the home to intentionally shame or humiliate or embarrass their children. Our words to each other in the body of Christ and to our own children should be directed not to shaming them, but to building them up. I look back over years of parenting, and I was nowhere close to being a perfect dad. And if you had my kids for a couple hours, they would quickly attest to that. But Kath and I had a lot of principles that we tried to embrace in our home, and certainly one of them was that we would never, if possible, discipline our children in public or in front of the other kids. We would always wait until we could find a private setting. We would always go behind closed doors in our home so that we would avoid, to the best of our ability, humiliating or shaming our children. And Paul doesn't want to shame these followers of Christ before the other churches in Asia, I I think. There has to be another way, and there is. And so Paul says, I didn't want to shame you, but rather I wanted to speak words of admonishment to you. To admonish means to put into one's mind. It means to be, be gentle, but yet firm as you talk to an individual. Through admonishment, we appeal and we, we, we encourage listening. We demonstrate the benefits of obedience. We call someone to pay attention. There's an urgency in admonishment, but there's a helpfulness in admonishment. Paul writes in another place, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. I think there's many ways that we provoke our children to anger, but one is certainly when we humiliate them or we embarrass them or we back them into a corner. But he says, rather, bring them up in the discipline and the instruction or admonishment of the Lord. And if you've had the privilege of parenting children, you understand that as children mature, you shift from an emphasis on discipline to an emphasis on admonishment. And the balance seems to shift as your children go older and older. The goal behind admonishment is always to bring about repentance and obedience to God. And so you see how this fits in a church. I hope you understand how this fits in a church. There are times when leaders, um, those who are more mature in Christ, must admonish lovingly. When they need to correct wrong doctrine or wrong behavior, It's not done with an intention to humiliate or to embarrass. Rather, it is done with an intention to bring about repentance and greater obedience. Paul wrote to the following to the Thessalonian believers, For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you, encouraged you, and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom for glory. And so as Paul is tying this all together, he's saying, listen, this has been my heart as I've been working through this difficult issue of division with you. My intention is not to humiliate or embarrass you, but rather it is to admonish you and instruct you into deeper obedience to God. The second thing that we see about Paul is that he demonstrates love to his children. You find that at the end of verse, uh, verse 14 when he now calls them my beloved children. Numerous places in the first four chapters he has referred to them as brothers. Now he refers to them as his beloved children. It's sometimes very hard to receive discipline as a good thing. And yet discipline is an indication that you are loved. Whether it's in the home or whether it's in the church. 
when somebody admonishes you, it's not a signal that they don't like you or that they want to be mean to you. It should be a signal that they love you. And remember that um, uh, the writer of Hebrews said, it is for discipline that you have to endure, for God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? In other words, Paul says this is just normal parental behavior. That if a father has children, he ought to discipline them. And if you are left without discipline, in which you have all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. One of the realities, I think, of parenting is that a lack of discipline leaves a child feeling unloved. And I believe the same is true in the family of God. How it is important then when even or when we are not in obedient morally or we are not upright or we are not doctorally sound to know that we are loved. And so Paul calls them beloved children. There's ample evidence of this already through these first four chapters that Paul has loved them. But now that love will become tested as he is about to engage in some very difficult subjects with these uh, Christians in Corinth. This will be difficult on him, as often you who have had the privilege of parenting know that sometimes you receive mean comments from your children. Sometimes you experience rejection. Sometimes you are even humiliated. But Paul doesn't give up. He doesn't let go. He doesn't stop speaking words of admonition to them. I have reflected on God's compassion to us, and I find it helpful to understand that, and I recognize that not everybody has had a good experience of a healthy father relationship. But under normal circumstances, we read some of these scriptures, and these are just two instances of how God compares himself to an earthly father. He says, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgression from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are but dust. I admire Paul as he deals with this church, even though there are some serious issues that he is confronted with. He has a heart of compassion. And that heart of compassion is the same heart that God has to you and I as his children. The second is what Pastor Barry read just a little bit earlier. I resonate with this picture both as a, fa as a father and as God my father. The Lord your God goes before you and he will fight for you just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord carried you as a man carried his son. You know what I think of when I read that verse is I think of throwing my kids on my shoulders and walking down a difficult path or just because they're exhausted and they say, Dad, can you carry me? And you whip them on your shoulders and off you go. And I love that picture of God with me when I'm tired or I'm exhausted, that God scoops me up and throws me on his shoulders and carries me for a little way. And so these are just two pictures, I think, of a loving father involved in their family, both expressions of love. 
The word beloved means to hold in high esteem. I, I did a little bit of reading on that word, and one individual said that this, it is a love that is not hidden, this, this beloved love. It is a love that is not hidden, but is expressed, demonstrated, proved, and on display. What help is a hidden, secret love? See, Paul had demonstrated his love towards the Corinthians in countless ways. And spiritual children, like natural children, grow slowly. They are not born mature, but they must be trained lovingly and gently, as well as carefully and sternly. And so a good father is invested in his children's lives for the long haul. He's concerned about them at all times. My beloved children, Paul says to them. How the church needs shepherds like that over the people of God. Thirdly, he's deeply invested in his kids, in his Christian children. In verse 15 it says this, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Jesus Christ through the gospel. I toyed with giving this section. He's in it for the long haul. I think Paul is making a point here. He's making a contrast between those who are hired help and don't have a vested interest in the long-term benefit of the children and those of a father. He's making a contrast between those who come and go in our children's lives and those who um, are fathers in the life of children. And Paul, I think, is also expressing a little of his personal hurt as it appears that some in Corinth were done with him and they were ready to wash their hands of his love and concern for them. He says, on the one hand, he says, you have countless guides. The word translated countless is the word myriads. It's an exaggeration by Paul. Myriads means 10,000. It's the largest um, number that they had in ancient Greek to express numbers. And so it means 10,000. So Paul is saying to them, listen, you may have 10,000 guides. A guide was a, a pedagogue. Um, they were most often a servant. They were, uh, if they weren't a servant, they were sometimes a hired hand. And their role was simply to look after the child, to take them to and from school, to help them with their homework, to tutor them in proper conduct, to, to discipline them possibly when necessary, to guard them from danger and evil influence. In some ways, we might use the term nanny. Um, it, it was a job or it was a duty to these individuals. But Paul's point is that a child may have countless guides like this or countless of people who have an influence like this, but they can only have one father. And Paul says, I am your spiritual father. He was with them for 18 months. He poured his heart and soul and strength into preaching Christ and Christ crucified. He labored to see Christ formed in them. And he is now reminding them he's not just here today and gone tomorrow. He's in it with, on the, for the long haul with them. He's not a teacher that swoops into a community, takes a bit of money, drops a few theological bombs, and then leaves. But rather, he's one that stays with them through thick and thin. One is a spiritual father, I believe, when one is used by God to bring somebody into the family of God. And I probably would be safe to say that almost every one of you here, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, knows who it was that had the significant influence in bringing you over that threshold. There's just a place that those individuals have in our lives, a, a, a place of esteem, and we should hold them in, in esteem as God used them to bring us into the family of God. 
Fourthly, Paul sets an example for his children. He says there in uh, the next verse, he says, For I, I urge you then, be imitators of me. I wanted to avoid that um, for so many different reasons. Paul is saying, follow my example. Imitate me. Follow me as I follow Christ. I, you know, most of us here today are mature, and we understand that imitation will happen passively or it will happen actively. It will happen unintentionally or it will happen intentionally. It is natural for children to imitate their parents. Passively, children, especially when they're young, copy their parents' way of life. They copy their tone of voice, their actions, the way they dress. They learn from them elementary truths. They adopt from them the same basic values. I was often surprised how I would look at my boys and I would see how so scarily they imitated me. They would say things in the same tone of voice that I used. They would speak to their mother the same way that I spoke to their mother. They would, they would copy words that I had said which I thought I shouldn't have said and they would repeat the same phrases. They're always watching, always listening. I was talking with one of my daughter-in-laws not long ago and there was a particular phrase that uh, they had been trying to avoid saying and it just came out one day as they were driving along and for the next number of minutes in the back seat quietly, um, almost under her breath, uh, the, the grandchild just repeated the phrase over and over and over again. Children imitate us. It's an entirely another thing to have the boldness and even the audacity, or I would probably argue the humility, to say, imitate me. I thought about this, both again as a dad and um, even as a pastor and a leader in a church. To say that requires, I think, incredible humility and a willingness to sacrifice. When you know that others are imitating you, and you're aware that they are imitating you, then you have to make conscious choices on things that you do, on places that you go, on what you talk about, and even on how you dress. Will I live as I know I should, or will I try and steer them in the right direction by my words only and not my, by, by my behaviors and actions? Will I live as I should or will I try to do what I want secretly when my kids are in bed, when no one is looking, to say the right thing knowing that I will do the opposite when I have opportunity? I think there's an obvious correlation between um, imitation and proximity. It's one thing to say, imitate me when you can only see me from a distance. It's an entirely another thing when you live with me or I with you on a daily basis. I am convinced that the home and intimate relationships is one of the most difficult places to live out your faith. It's there where your moods and attitudes and actions and speech and, yes, even hypocrisy are most clearly seen. It's not enough to just teach the right principles. We have to live those principles that we teach. We have to live them out before our children. We have to live them out before one another. 
when we are alone or when we're in company, what do we say about the people of God? What do we say about the Lord's Day? What do we watch? What do we read? How do we treat our our spouses? I've been reading through the historical books again, and I recognize very clearly that um, this is the general pattern. This is not, there are many exceptions to this, but you read again and again in the historical books, and you will find that it says, and so-and-so became king, and they did evil as their father so-and-so had done, or so-and-so became king, and they did right as their father so-and-so had done. I think it's the natural result of imitation. It's not the foregone conclusion always, but it's the natural result. And so Paul is saying to them, imitate me. Do as I do, not as I say. And it's fascinating to me that Paul then says, you know, I'm not here, but I'm going to send you Timothy. And he says, Timothy is my child of faith. He is a faithful, beloved child in the Lord. There's another one of his children, as he is a spiritual father to them. And he says to them, he will remind you of my ways in Christ. I love that. He's saying, Timothy got it. Timothy caught it. Timothy has embraced it. Timothy has understood it. And what are his ways in Christ? They could be many, but I think primarily they are his gospel. They are what he taught. They are that Jesus Christ and Christ crucified is the foundation of the church. That that is our message. That that is our gospel. That we ought not add to it. We ought not take away to it. We ought not flower it up with our language. And Timothy will say, this is what Paul has done. And it works. And this is what I do. And it is what God has given to us. And so he says, I'm going to send Timothy, who has imitated my ways. And he will affirm what I have taught you when I was there. Fifthly, he is consistent in and committed to teaching his children. He says there, as I teach them everywhere in every church. I was fascinated again by this as I thought it through. Paul was not one of these individuals who said one thing in one context and another thing in another context. He was not swayed by culture or by pressure. He says, this is what I teach everywhere. And again, what is he referring to? He's referring to Christ and Christ crucified. There is no other wisdom. There is no other power. This is the power of God in Corinth, in Parksville, in Bangkok, in Washington. It is the same message every place and in every church. And I think that's what he's, he's talking about there. He's reasoned with the people. He's labored so that they would understand these things. He has reminded them again and again that human wisdom is not the wisdom to build one's faith on and one's church on. And there may be a subtle point here about the church, and it's simply this, it matters what we teach. And it matters that there be consistency from one church to another. It, it really is not one church can be one thing and another church can be another thing and another church can be another thing. It's, it's actually disappointing to realize that there is so much difference on key issues amongst the churches, even on the island, let alone in the province and around the world. I'm encouraged by Paul's commitment to clear and consistent communication. He knows no other gospel. He appeals to no other itching ears. He doesn't want to sound attention or, uh, intelligent. He just wants them to get it, that the way to God is through Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I thought of this even as I was reflecting on raising our children. And I understand, and if you have more than one child, that 
there are different personalities and different strengths and different weaknesses, and you've got to alter the application of principles as you raise your children up to be young men and young women. But you can't have one set of rules for one and another set of rules for the other. There's got to be consistency in your parenting while there might be a difference in your application. And I love that about Paul. He's not a waffler. He doesn't give in to pressure. And he's not even trying to humiliate the Corinthians. He's simply saying to him, listen, what I say to you, I say to every other church. This is the foundation of the church. And the last one is, He's willing to discipline his children. And this is going to lead us into 1 Corinthians chapter 5. But he deals, I think, with the elephant in the room. And it seems to me that this is where so many churches and homes go off the rails. It's a failure to discipline. Not all discipline is negative, but it seems that we most often perceive it to be negative. But even if it is negative, and I have prayed this and asked for this in my own life, I would rather the wounds of a friend than the kisses of an enemy. I would much rather one who had the courage to come alongside of me and hurt me initially by challenging me with an error in my life than one who just wanted to be my buddy and ignored everything that I did that was contrary to God's way. Discipline is not unnatural or even unspiritual. Moses reminded the Israelites of this reality. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out. Your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Discipline ought not to be a repulsive thing to us in the body of Christ or in our walk with God. It ought to be something that we know deep down in our hearts that not only is this good for me, but that it is an expression of somebody's love for me. It's natural, he says, as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord disciplines you. And I want to just say a, a couple words for those of us who have received discipline or those of us who may be on the receiving end of it at some point down the road, and I don't think we're ever beyond it. We need to think correctly about it. Paul or Solomon, sorry, wrote this. He says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Those are words that we ought to just stick inside of our hearts. Don't despise the Lord's discipline and don't resent his rebuke. You can see that sometimes. I remember that in, in our children and it still saddens me, but you know, that was not their normal way. But you could tell when they just hardened their hearts. Their whole body language says, what are you doing to me? You, 
and you could just see it all over their faces. And it's the same in the body of Christ, that there are times probably when each one of us certainly will be disciplined by God, and when maybe each one of us might be taken out for a cup of coffee by a loving brother or sister who has the courage to wound us. And your first response might be to despise that or to resent it. Catch yourself, though, and say, Thank you, Father, for your love expressed in discipline through my brother or sister. This kind of discipline is both a parental responsibility and a church responsibility. There are times when spiritual fathers and mothers, like natural fathers and mothers, have to discipline their children. When Christians do step out of line, either in doctrine or in wrong behavior, they need to be brought back into following God. Paul was gone. And this group of Christians, I think, is some of them, at least in the church, uh, it might be akin to when mom and dad leaves home and you leave your kids at home alone. And you're not quite sure what you're going to find when you come home. Um, it maybe changes as they get older. But it seems like this was what was taking place here. Paul had left Corinth, and now all of a sudden these individuals in Corinth were saying, well, Paul's gone. He's just letting off a bunch of steam. He's maybe even lost his courage. He's not coming back. And Paul wants to remind them. He says, listen, I am coming back to you. And I think that's the heart of the Corinthian error towards Paul. And it's still an error that we commit today. It's a refusal to submit to apostolic authority and the word of God. And I say that because there are many churches today who don't want Paul. They will take a lot of the Gospels. They will take John. They might take Psalms and Proverbs. But don't give me that Paul guy. And I've actually had people in churches say to me, I believe the Bible, but I don't believe Paul. And it's still an apostolic or it's a Corinthian error that goes on. Some would say even in our church today, I don't want Christ and I don't want the cross. I want different methods. I want an easier way to find Christ. But I hope you understand that the problem is much bigger than Paul or the cross in Jesus Christ. The issue is with biblical authority and has God spoken. And clearly God has spoken. In his Bible, his word to us is his inspired word. Whether Paul wrote it, or James wrote it, or David wrote it, or Solomon wrote it, or Moses wrote it, it is all the word of God. And so Paul says, make no mistake, I'm coming back. And we'll find later that Paul came back and it was, he called it his painful visit, or his visit with tears, because initially it was tough slugging. And I don't know as if, if you who are parents, you've ever had those times when you've just been in tears. As you know you've had to do something and you know it's not been well received. You know it's caused pain. And the last thing you wanted to do was do that with your children. But you knew it had to be done. And I think that's Paul's attitude to the church as well. He loved these people so much that he was willing to cause them pain if it would, if it would bring about their obedience to the Lord again. So Paul says to them, and this is where we will conclude this morning, he says in verse 21, what do you wish? What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod? Or with love and a spirit of gentleness? The choice was really theirs. 
what a great, great way, I think, to end up as he's working with these spiritual children of his. Do you want me to come with a rod? Or do you want me to come in love and in gentleness? I think few aspects of modern church life are so at odds with the apostles as our failure to exercise godly discipline in the church, whether it regards unrepentant immorality or unrepented heresy. We don't do anybody any favors by putting our heads in the sand and denying that people are wrestling with either morality or doctrine. May God help us to learn from Paul, both in our personal lives and in our corporate lives, how to deal with God's family. Father, we thank you for just a few minutes together in your word today. As we just, uh, I hope, learn a few things about Paul and the way, Father, that you would like to be understood in your leading and guiding of our lives personally. I pray you'll help us, Father, to think about these things, to be open and responsive to your correction in our life, your admonition in our life, and to be full of gratefulness that you love us, even if it is sometimes expressed in painful things. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.